Radio Free Mormon. Bill Real. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. I'm very excited tonight. So am I. This was a lot of fun to watch you put together and me to add a couple little things in and for you to take us down the fun path of uh, deception and uh, treasure digging and all the craziness in early Mormon history. Uh, I'll turn the time over to you, my friend. It is all yours. What are you What are you thinking about tonight? Well, this is Mormonism Live with Bill Real and Radio Free Mormon. Tonight is March 31st, 2021. It is the Wednesday of Holy Week. And what's going on here is that last week, last week you had picked the subject because that was kind of your week. Yeah. And you talked about Miner's Hill, which I had really never heard much about before. He had all those great pictures and all those great yeah, stories. Yeah, and I added a few things to that as I, I did some research into it because of your prompt. And I also did some other research, but it ended up being too much for that show. And one of the things I decided to do when I found out that you were going to talk about treasure digging was I was going to go back and I was going to revisit um, a historian that I have great respect for, D. Michael Quinn, and his book, Early Mormonism and the Magic World View. That's, this came out in the 1980s. But there was a second edition that was published in 1998. This is the second edition, which had some additions and probably some deletions. I know there were deletions, like taking out the Mark Hoffman stuff, yeah. which had by that point been found to be not correct. But there's a lot of additions in there. And there's one chapter. It's actually chapter two that D. Michael Quinn talks about the treasure digging stuff. And I had read this again about a year ago. And I was thinking, I need to do a podcast about this because there's so much that I'm learning, the way he writes is so dense in the sense of there's so much factual information that he puts in his chapters. And frankly, about half of the book is footnotes. So the text of the book, no, really, the text of the book goes up to there, okay? This, mm. is, the, this is the text of the book over here. Over here are the pictures, and then you get to the footnotes. Mm -hmm. These are the footnotes, yeah, and those are, very, very well documented and very, very interesting. Okay, so having said all of that, first thing I want to talk about tonight, there's three main things. The first is not a huge bombshell. Second one is a much bigger bombshell, at least to me. Third one is kaboom through the ceiling bombshell. So we'll take them in that order. First thing has to do with Lucy Max Smith talking about the, um, I'll say the folk magic that she and her family were involved in. This is her, uh, her history of her son, Joseph Smith. And let me find this here. It is quoted in this book by D. Michael Quinn. And it's a rather famous quote, at least among people who know about this kind of thing. It's pages 68 and 69. So let me find that really quick. And this is where she talks about the faculty of ABRAC. It's kind of a, a famous statement because it's so odd, at least to our modern ears, where in 1845, she's writing the history one year after Joseph Smith has been killed, let not my reader suppose that because I shall pursue other topics for a season, that we stopped our labor and went at trying to win the faculty of Abrac, drawing magic circles, or soothsaying, or soothsaying, try and say that three times fast. So trying to win the faculty of Abrac, drawing magic circles, or soothsaying at the neglect, or to, to the neglect of all kinds of business. So what she's saying is, yeah, they did this stuff, but they didn't neglect their regular business in order to do it. They did it in moderation is the meaning of this. So we, ha we have an idea as to what the magic circles are. 
those have a lot to do with treasure digging because you have to draw magic circles to bind the demons or the malignant uh, guardian spirits who want to guard the treasure and possibly hurt the people who are trying to get the uh, guardian spirits treasure. I mean, that's what they're there for is to guard the treasure. So if you come for the treasure, you're going to get hurt unless you draw the magic circles and bind them. But this faculty of Abrac is very interesting. So uh, D. Michael Quinn also has a chart here. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I, I was talking about the seventh degree of Abracadabra. And if you have got, there's a diagram that this is referring to about this faculty of Abrac. Let me find this here. There you go. And this is not from her book. This is from a reproduction of a book that's from like 1665, I believe. <clears throat> yeah, or 1665, 66 school year. This is something that's very well known in folk magic circles. And if you see there, the inverted um, triangle at the bottom of that page, that's the key where it says abracadabra across the top. You see that there? Mm -hmm. And then the next line is a little bit shorter because you drop the final A. The next line is a little bit shorter because you drop the A and the R from the end of the word. And you go all the way down until all you have is the first letter A. And you see it makes an A all the way down the side if you're going on the left side up. Yeah, it's almost like chiasmus, but not. No, if it if it if you repeated it coming out. <laughs> I'm just being funny. Mr. Book of Mormon apologist. <laughs> yeah, then it would be a chiasmus, man. <laughs> this is half a chiasmus. So, yes. So if you go down to the seventh line now of this diagram, can you do that with your little cursor? Yeah, I'm right there. You can just see right there where I am. Yeah, the seventh line is the most holy line of this diagram because it's number seven. If you go down to the seventh line, you'll find that what it becomes is ABRAC, A-B-R-A-C. So it's just the first five letters of abracadabra. The significance is that it's on the seven line in the diagram. And this is doubtless what Lucy Max Smith is referring to when she's talking about pursuing the faculty of Abrac. Mm. Okay. And according to uh, D. Michael Quinn, he says, um, Abrac was one of the names used in conjurations, seeking visions and apparition, apparitions, excuse me. So it's something that could be used in a conjuring spell of some sort. Mm -hmm. I think it has kind of widespread uh, usage, but that's what she's talking about. That's the first thing I want to talk about to fulfill that promise that I made a couple of weeks ago to get back to this when I made that allusion to talking about the seventh, the seventh line of this diagram. So there it is. Okay. Now we're going to go to the next thing, which all of this, by the way, I have a debt of gratitude and I think I've already made it clear. D. Michael Quinn, incredible scholar. And it's going back through this and really perusing it and reading it carefully and marking it up and highlighting it and thinking about it and following the footnotes that I was able to come up with a couple things that struck me that I had not realized before. The next thing has to do with the money digging of Joseph Smith. Now, we all know by this point that Joseph Smith was a money digger. In fact, actually, he's probably more of a, a money looker. Uh, he may not have done so much digging. I think other people did the digging. He had more of the job of looking and the locating with his um, his uh, peepstone or peakstone, as you mentioned last week, in his hat. So he finds a location, has other people dig. Now, he was doing this, according to D. Michael Quinn, for probably around since the end of 1919. I should say 1819. 1819. So he's doing it for basically from 1819 or 1820 to be safe 
all the way up through 1827. This is something he's doing for years. And the uh, significance of that, to me anyway, is that while we're talking about events in church history, while we're talking about the first vision in the spring of 1820, according to D. Michael Quinn, he's doing treasure digging and treasure seeking during the time that he reports having the first vision. This is all happening yeah. at the same time. And frankly, and what he, um, what D. Michael Quinn says is on page 31, Smith's first vision occurred within the context of his family's treasure quest. Yeah, to the point where I tell people, you know, Joseph Smith got his first seer stone in 1819, one year before the first vision. He's 13 years old. He gets his second seer stone, the brown egg-shaped one he uses to translate the Book of Mormon, in 1822, one year before Moroni visits. So all of this treasure digging is happening at the exact same time. He's telling people about gold plates and an angel Moroni and uh, Lamanites and Nephites being the uh, descendants of, or the ancestors of the American Indians. Uh, all that is going on at the exact same time. You're on, you're on mute. Sorry. And like you said, all the, the visitations from Moroni from 1823, September 22nd, important date, 1823, 1824, 1825, 1826, and 1827. Now, I think I'm miscounting those because there's four years that he's visiting with Moroni, right, on a yearly basis. It's 1824, 25, 26, and 27. Is that correct? Yeah, 1823, he is visited in his bedroom, but then he comes back on 1820s. 4, 1825, 1826, and then gets the plates in 27. And we only have any bits of history about three of those visits. The fourth visit, I think, is exempt of any actual data out there. Okay. But regardless, for purposes of this podcast, that's not critical. This is all happening at the same time. But even back when, in the 80s, when I was learning from um, from certain books, not authorized church books. In fact, I learned about it from uh, Richard Bushman's book, Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Mormonism, which was his book that was going to be published by the church uh, originally, but then that got kiboshed because of the contents. So it wasn't published by the church. It ended up being published, I believe, by the University of Illinois Press. Anyway, he talks about that in there. So I'm dealing with this in the 1980s. I'm trying to understand it. And Richard Bushman is helping me understand this by sort of hermetically sealing Joseph Smith's treasure digging activities mm -hmm. from his prophetic calling and things he does as a prophet as if there's a, a certain line in the sand and up to that he does treasure digging after that he does prophetic stuff and they're completely separated and one was a preparation for the other mm -hmm. so um but then i i find out that this treasure digging is all going on at the same time there's no clear demarcation in fact it's all overlapped right yeah at and, least during the 1820s yeah, and by the way, they're not just going on at the same time. They contain the same thematic elements. You have guardian spirits of treasures made of precious metals. You have digging in the side of hills. You have the use of seer stones. The Moroni story includes all of those elements as well. Um, they're not exempt. And so not only at the same time, but the same subject matter. Yeah, especially when you find out the early accounts from Joseph Smith and others who heard his story about how it is that the angel uh, or the spirit whoever it is who's guarding the plates, who shows Joseph Smith where they are. Uh, the first time he can't get them is because he puts them down and turns his back on the plates to cover up the, the hole with the stone, right? Hmm. So, and the, the angel, spirit, whatever, Moroni, 
has told him, don't let these plates out of your sight. And so he picks up the plates after removing the stone, picks up the plates, turns around, thinks, oh, I need to cover the box up with a stone so nobody else finds it, puts the plates down, turns back, puts the stone over the hole, turns back around to pick up the plates, and they're gone. Yeah. And the spirit's right there saying, I, I told you, don't take your eyes off the plates. How many times do I have to tell you? Yeah, yeah. He And, and yet... How many times are the plates stored away from Joseph Smith where his eyes are off the plates? Even the translation, his eyes are off the plates. Well, I guess that's a good point, too. Well, at this point, that was very important anyway. Cool. So, And Joseph Smith turns back to the hole in the ground with the rock, lifts up the rock. The plates are back there again, right? So they mm-hmm. magically whisked from here to here. Spirit says, okay, come back one year. No plates for you. Come back one year. Yeah. And so Joseph Smith comes back in another year and et cetera. And there's all sorts of different stories, which we're not going to get into for tonight because we're heading for this story, which is that we all understand. And I have heard the stories as they've been told by the church and in the Pearl of Great Price, the Joseph Smith history, that there is there are similar thematic elements between Moroni and the gold plates versus the treasure digging. But the activity is completely different because the treasure digging, Joseph Smith's putting his uh, rock in the hat, looking in the hat, finding a location to dig for treasure and having people try and dig and unfortunately never actually coming up with anything out of the ground as far as treasure goes. It came very close on occasion, I understand, but they never actually took anything home with them. And the gold plates, though, there doesn't have to be all this this treasure digging and digging holes and trying to find it because you've got an angel who appears to Joseph Smith in his bedroom, says, gives him a vision. Here's the hill. Here's the rock. Find the rock. Joseph Smith knows the place because he's been there so many times. Finds the rock. Boom. He knows exactly where it is, right? That's the story. Okay. Now, having said all of that, there is a tantalizing piece of history which suggests that once again, the treasure digging activity may not be so different from the finding of the gold plates because there is something that was brought up in this book, just one line in this book by D. Michael Quinn, that says that Joseph Smith and Martin Harris, by the way, and Martin Harris dug in multiple places in order to find the gold plates. Now, that sounds incredible to me. It did when I looked at it and said, what is it saying? Does this mean what I think it means? So there's one line in this book, and I went ahead and I looked up and found uh, the actual letter itself. Do you have that letter? Okay. So this is a very important letter. It's a letter that has this phrase in it. It's one page. You can see it there. It is a letter that's written by W.W. Phelps in January of 1831. So first off, we've got a, a friendly source. For the letter, we have it very early on. It's January of 1831. The church was only organized in April of the preceding year. Now, this letter is written to E.D. Howe. And E.D. Howe is sort of a famous name in early Mormonism, mainly because he came up with what was really the first anti-Mormon book called Mormonism Unveiled. And the background there is that E.D. Howe, he's a publisher. He owns and operates a newspaper in Ohio, in Painesville, Ohio. And in 1831, by this time, Mormons had just come through Ohio, as everybody remembers, I'm sure, from Sunday school class when hopefully you were paying attention and not sleeping. They've just come through on their missionary trip to the Lamanites 
down in Missouri and they went by way of Ohio and they preached to Sidney Rigdon and his congregation. Lots of people were converted, right? And that becomes the second headquarters for the church after New York is in Ohio because of that reception. Well, E.D. Howe lives in Ohio. He's aware of the Mormons coming through. He's aware of the fact that they're gaining converts. And in fact, his wife got converted to Mormonism. His sister got converted to Mormonism and his niece got converted to Mormonism. So he's going, what the heck is going on with his Mormonism? Well, I know this guy who's also a publisher back in New York in the area where the Mormons came from and where they're, you know, they started. And his name is W.W. Phelps. So he writes him a letter. It says, W.W. Phelps, can you tell us, tell me what's going on with his Mormonism? Because is this a crock or what? <laughs> and so we don't have that letter that he wrote to W.W. Phelps. But what we have is the letter that he wrote back to E.D. Howe on January 15th, 1831. Now, W.W. Phelps is not a member of the church yet. Yeah. He has investigated it. He met Joseph Smith the preceding December of 1830. He's probably very impressed with him. I believe he was. He ends up joining the church by being baptized in June. I think it's June 10th of 1831. So he's a few months off of being baptized at this point. And he's going to write a letter back. And his letter is very, very favorable. He's obviously friendly to the LDS church. By the way, I have to mention that this letter, the source of this letter is Mormonism unveiled. Okay. Because it's E.D. Howe who received the letter. He, a couple of years later, publishes Mormonism unveiled. And he can, and he includes, it's by, if you don't know, that's an anti-Mormon book. Okay. It's not at all friendly to, to Joseph Smith and the Mormons. And he has a few nasty things to say about W.W. Phelps because by the time he publishes his book, he's joined the church, but he includes this letter. And the thing that I note about it is that it seems likely to me that this is actually the letter that was sent by W.W. Phelps to E.D. Howe, mainly because it's so positive. It doesn't appear it's something that uh, is monkeyed with by someone with an axe to grind to try and make fun of W.W. Uh, Phelps. Um, but here it is. Dear sir, so this is W.W. Phelps to E.D. Howe, January 15, 1831. Years of the 11th. That's his letter from the 11th of the letter to W.W. Phelps. Yours of the 11th is before me, but to give you a satisfactory answer is out of my power. By the way, Bill, could you read this in your best W.W. Phelps impression? I don't know what W.W. Phelps sounded like, but... Uh, Perfect. We'll, or where where are you looking? You said... Uh, it's, it's out of my power. To be sure, I'm acquainted with a number of persons concerned in the publication called Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith is a person of very limited abilities and common learning but his knowledge of divine things since the appearance of his book has astonished many. Mr. Harris, whose name is in the book, is a wealthy farmer, but of small literary acquirements. He is honest and sincerely declares upon his soul's salvation that the book is true and was interpreted by Joseph Smith through a pair of silver spectacles found with the plates. Okay, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it right there. The next sentence is the key. Could you read that very slowly and very clearly for our audience? The places where they dug for the plates in Manchester are to be seen. When the plates were laid, we're sorry, when the plates were said to have been found, a copy of one or two lines of the characters were taken by Mr. Harris to Utica, Albany, and New York. At New York, they were shown to Dr. Mitchell and he referred to Professor Anton, who translated and declared them to be of ancient shorthand Egyptian. So much is true. The family of the Smiths is poor and generally, generally ignorant in common learning. You want me to stop there? You want me to keep going? 
Um, I'm just going to read through it really quick because uh, I just want everybody to see how positive this letter is, because I think that's important when we go back and focus in on that sentence. I have read the book. This is continuing W.W. Phelps. I have read the book and many others have, but we have nothing by which we can positively detect it as an imposition, i.e. fraud, nor have we anything more than what I have stated in the book itself to show its genuineness. We doubt, supposing if it is false, it will fall. And if of God, God will sustain it. Okay. I had 10 hours discourse with a man from your state named Sidney Rigdon, a convert to its doctrines. And he declared it was true. And he knew it by the power of the Holy Ghost, which was again given to man in preparation for the millennium. He appeared to be a man of talents and sincere in his profession. Should any new light be shed on the subject, I will apprise you respectfully, W.W. Phelps. So you can see how absolutely positive and glowing this letter is about Mormonism. There is no hint that there's been any, any monkeying with this letter in order to put something bad in it out of the mouth of W.W. Phelps. And yet smack dab in the middle of this glowing letter is this sentence that now sticks out like a sore thumb to me. After speaking about Mr. Harris, i.e. Martin Harris and Joseph Smith, translating through a pair of silver spectacles found with the plates, he says, the places where they dug for the plates in Manchester are to be seen. There's two things there, RFM. One is that it is intimating, it seems to be intimating that Martin Harris and Joseph Smith did some digging. Mm-hmm. And it, and it insinuates that they dug in multiple locations. Yes. And the holes, you can still see them. That's what he means are to be seen. They're still visible, right? They plural and where yes. they dug. Uh, so there is, there's plurality uh, both in the locations, the places, and the people, they. And he, and, he, and he puts Martin Harris in that sentence. So we're left to assume that that's Martin and Joseph. Well, yes, that is the straightforward understanding of it. There's nobody else mentioned. In connection with that, the places where they dug for the place in Manchester are to be seen. Now, is it possible that out of this entire letter where he gets everything else absolutely correct, according to regular Mormon history as we understand it, that he got this wrong? Yeah, it's possible. On the other hand, we also know that over time there are certain recitations of foundational events in Mormonism that seem to change. One of them is the first vision. 1832, account only mentions one being appearing. And then by the time it's 1838, we have basically the film version, you know, that we that we have now with two beings appearing and this is my beloved son, hear him and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But is it possible, I ask you, whether this is an early version of the story of how it was the gold plates were found, which morphed into the angel now tells them exactly where the plates are. Now, it tells Joseph where the plates are, shows him in vision, and he knows it. There's no digging. There's no guessing. There's no uh, trying to find it by digging around, by looking in the hat. Is there a similar change going on here? Because what this is saying and what this is indicating to me is that the this, this early story about the finding of the gold plates was done in a way that was much more consistent with the common money-digging practices that we know Joseph Smith was engaged in at the time and much less like a visionary experience where he knows where they are. He goes where the rock is. He doesn't have to dig at all. He just pries up the rock in the official and later vision version. Yeah. And, and I want to just add a little tidbit, which is this idea that when Moroni shows Joseph Smith where the plates are, Joseph knows the territory. Mm-hmm. He knows the spot. He's been there before. And if you and I went to a hill and and we're shown by an angel 
um, where something was, we would have to have been on that hill multiple times. We'd have to be really familiar with it to go like, yep, I know exactly the location that that angel's talking about. It, in my mind, once I understand all this data, it seems as though Joseph's digging for the plates. He's trying to find them. He's not, he doesn't, you know, he never comes up with anything. And suddenly the angel goes, basically, you're digging in all the wrong places. Here's where the plates are. And now Joseph goes, aha, I know that spot. Or maybe there's no angel involved in the early version. Correct. And, and I think once we understand that things are always moving and shifting and changing with all the data we shared last week and all the stuff that came along with that, I think you hit the nail on the head, which is Joseph's narrative is constantly shifting and changing and the early accounts aren't the same as the later one. Right. And that's why I emphasized and we'll emphasize again, this is written January 15th, 1831, very early on. Mm. Okay. So it's an early account of the finding of the plates from W.W. Phelps in an absolutely glowing and positive letter about Joseph Smith and about the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that was a huge bombshell to me. That's that's one of the ones that we're hitting at tonight. There, there's going to be a handful, and that's probably not the most important one. Well, let me ask you. Uh, I know that you've been doing some research. Had you wanted to talk a little bit about um, something else that yeah. may be missing? Why don't, you, why don't you bring up the next document you want to talk about, which is where okay. we're going to go off on and talk about the main bombshell. But let's let you introduce the, the document, the point in the document that you and I talked about that led to me finding a few things. Okay, really good. So here's the deal. What this next bombshell is, is that Joseph Knight Sr. is a wealthy person who is early in the history of the church. He knows Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith's family in the 1820s. In fact, according to D. Michael Quinn, he meets Joseph Smith for the first time in November of 1826. So that's very early on. And Joseph Knight Sr. ends up joining the church. He's very impressed with Joseph Smith and how hard he works and his prophetic abilities. And he ends up joining the church and he's a member of the church until he passes away in 1843 in Illinois. So his family also joins the church. His wife joins the church. His kids join the church. This is a hugely important family in the church. And uh, basically he lives in Colesville, New York. So that's the Colesville branch that ends up becoming its own sort of organization and retains its identity for some time throughout church history, the Colesville branch. He is the centerpiece of the Colesville branch. So that's uh, Joseph Knight Sr. Okay, now Joseph Knight Sr. writes a personal history, which is not super long. It's only uh, a handful of pages, but has a lot of very important information in it. He writes it pretty early on, which is probably around 1833, maybe 1834. It's not exactly sure because it's not dated. There are some indicators in the text that we'll talk about here in a second. Yep. But the key point that D. Michael Quinn points out to me is that guess what's missing from the Joseph Knight Sr. personal history? What is it, RFM, that's missing? The first pages. Oh, my goodness. Now, now this is important. <laughs> In Mormonism, stuff is always not where it's supposed to be. These documents are always missing pages. We've got beaks of Egyptian uh, folks having their being shaved off. We've got uh, pages being cut out with pen knives and taped back in. And here again, once again, we have something missing. Well, I tell you what, uh, do you have that page from uh, 54, page 54 of 
D. Michael Quinn's book, there's one paragraph there where it talks about it. Yeah, give me one second. Let me pull that up. And while you're pulling it up, of course, immediately I look at this and go, what the heck are you talking about? Because it reminds me of the 1832 account that Joseph Smith wrote of his first vision in letter book one. Because out of that, the first three pages, i.e. front and back, six pages, three leaves, were cut out by Joseph Fielding Smith or somebody at his direction, and they were stored in Joseph Fielding Smith's safe. That's letter book one. That's Joseph Smith's history, which he wrote in 1832. Oh, wait, hold on. 1832, Joseph Smith's first vision, Yeah. pages cut out. 1833, yeah. most likely, mm -hmm. Joseph Knight Sr. and his personal history of Joseph Smith's history, and we have pages missing. Right, and here's, yes, and here's uh, this paragraph. Uh, Joseph Knight's personal history tells of his acquaintance with Smith. Housed in LDS church archives, i.e., that's where, yeah, Jane Christie is going, what? Exactly, Jane Christie. Uh, housed in LDS church archives, which is where Joseph Knight's personal history is, this manuscript is, quote, missing at least one beginning page, unquote. And we'll get to where he's quoting that from, okay? Now, the reason he says it's missing at least one beginning page is because we don't know how many pages there were before it starts. Where it starts is it starts in the middle of a scene. It's obvious it's not starting at the beginning, right? So yeah. we know that there's stuff that's missing from before it, and we know it's at least one page, but we don't know how many other pages from before it. By the way, if there's only one page, that would actually be two written on both sides. So it'd be one leaf and two pages before it, minimum. And uh, so there's stuff that's going on before it. We'll get more into the details of that. Uh, it says, this missing portion, this is back to D. Michael Quinn for those listening on audio, this missing portion would cover the period when treasure digging was allegedly the primary association of Knight, that's Joseph Knight Sr., with teenage Joseph. As previously stated by Collington and also by other sources, LDS historian Richard L. Bushman observes, although a believer from the start, Knight's recollection, that's what it's called, recollection, this document, Knight's recollection has bothered some Mormon readers because of its rough cut style and its unembarrassed reports of familiar relations with neighborhood money, money diggers, excuse me, familiar relations with neighborhood money diggers. So that's the quote from Richard L. Bushman. It ends by saying that discomfort explains the missing pages in Knight's history of his first association with young Joseph Smith. And you see that page, that footnote 203, if you go all the way back to page 399, then you'll find that footnote. And here's where he links it and makes the insinuation that Joseph Fielding Smith may have been responsible for taking these pages and hiding them the way he was famous for doing with other documents of a sensitive nature. Oh, I don't have that. Do you? I don't have the footnote. Did you send that to me? Yeah, I did. I was wondering if you have it. And I don't, I don't really have sure. a way to put it up at the moment. It's okay. It's not that long. But uh, I do have it marked. So here it is. Everybody ready? Um, let's see here. When Joseph Smith first met the Knight family, oh well. Let me let me just go to three lines in, okay? Because uh, uh, believe me, you'll thank me. Rather than being destroyed, it is more likely that Knight's first page or pages ended up in the private safe of Joseph Fielding Smith. Hmm. During his service as official LDS church historian from 1920 to 1970, Apostle Smith put in his safe any historical documents he regarded as extremely sensitive. 
When he became LDS president in January 1970, Joseph Hildy Smith had this safe removed to the vault of the First Presidency, where its contents remain today. Give Brother Joseph a break. <laughs> <laughs> now, he did write this in 1998. This is the second edition published in 1998. So uh, I only say that because the footnote says, says where its contents remain today. I don't know if that still is true. Right. Right. So then, so then you, the actual document here, now this was, uh, this was D. Michael Quinn's book that we have up on the screen. That was the footnote to D. Michael Quinn's book that we just read. And the Joseph Knight senior book, uh, or, or recollection as you called it. Uh, and as they said there in the, in the book that it exists, you can read page something. We don't know what page it is and it starts all the way to the end that you can still read. The church has uh, allowed this to surface, but again, things are missing. And I want to note a couple little things. Obviously, as D. Michael Quinn's pointing out, it seems really similar to uh, Joseph Fielding Smith and his taking out the 1832 account. And as you also pointed out, I just want to reiterate this as we get further into it, because the bombshell is based on this uh, that we're going to get to later. But there's a couple other little things that I found along the way that I wanted to share before you did that. Mm -hmm. Let's note that Joseph Knight, as you pointed out, is in Joseph's environment, interacting with him early on, 1825, 1826. This is earlier than Brigham Young. This is earlier than Parley Pratt. This is earlier than Orson Pratt. This is earlier than lots and lots of the other folks that we look to for data and information in Mormonism. Joseph Knight and Joseph Knight Sr. and Joseph Smith Jr. had a friendship. Joseph Knight Sr. is much older, as you pointed out as well, but they like each other. Uh, he refers to Joseph Smith Jr. as the best worker he's ever had work for him. Uh, these two are close. They care about each other. They help each other at multiple times based on the historical data. Now, before we get to the giant bombshell, when you told me about this, I said, this isn't the only thing. Uh, another thing that we came across this week as we were reading all this stuff and studying up, uh, Brian Hales on his website, Joseph Smith's Polygamy, has a letter because we're looking at uh, uh, the nights and other information. I brought to your attention that the letter from January 21st, 1838, where Oliver Cowdery is writing his brother, Warren Cowdery, and telling him about the affair or the filthy, nasty scrape, as it is originally written out, uh, regarding Fanny Elger, who is a maid in the Smith home and who uh, Emma says she saw the whole transaction. And Oliver Cowdery says something, some filthy, sorry, sorry his exact words are dirty, nasty, filthy scrape. And what we, our best information tells us, this is based on Don Bradley and others, that when uh, Warren Cowdery's son, and I don't know what the son's name is, but it's, I believe, Joseph Smith or Oliver Cowdery's um, nephew, who then crosses out scrape or just writes over it. And you can see that on the screen right there, right where my cursor is moving, where scrape is written over with the word affair. And there's all this debate about what that means. But I thought I would go back to the Joseph Smith Papers Project and try to find it. Because once again, this isn't from the Joseph Smith Papers Project. This is Brian Hale's website about polygamy. This is Brian Hale's website about polygamy, and he has all these documents stored up, and he has he has uh, this letter, this particular section of the letter here. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you can see the, we have an actual copy of the letter, but you can see from the copy there on the screen, RFM, that as I was telling you this morning, the copy is black and white, clearly just a regular photocopy. Where's well, that copy from? This is on mormonpolygamydocuments.org. That's Brian Hales. Yeah, but that's the only copy we show. Now, notice the page number in the top left corner, page 81. Right. See that? Mm-hmm. Page 81 is where this letter starts, and now where my cursor is, see the word scrape with the word affair written over it? Yes. Okay. So um, I thought I would go back to the Joseph Smith Papers Project and find that letter because the church is being as transparent as it knows how to be. Remember Elder Ballard? Mm. And remember, too, that the church has claimed that it is making an effort to put every document up that is directly having to do with Joseph Smith or is pointing to him and talking about him in those contemporary times of his life. Well, I went to the Joseph Smith Papers Project, and this is the same letter. Look at the date. Letter from Oliver Cowdery. 21st January, 1838. This is a letter book. As I was telling you this morning, back in the 1800s, when you wrote somebody a letter, you made a copy of your own letter. You sent your letter off. They would take your letter and put it into a letter book with their other letters that they had gotten. Then they would write you back and they would make a copy of their letter and put their copy in their letter book and send you the letter back. And you'd put that copy in the letter book. So you always had the entire correspondence because again, there's no telephones, there's no phones, no um, copy machines. There's no, there's no way to, to do this. The only way you can, when someone's saying like, Oh, I remember back, remember last year when you told me about that trip you took to whatever, the only way you can cross check information is to have copies of these letters. The church has this information. Strangely though, here's page 80. Look where my cursor is mm-hmm. page 80. That's it. It ends. We don't get page 81. The church doesn't want members of the church, believing members of the church, to see the Oliver Cowdery data. And it has to do with Joseph Smith directly because Oliver Cowdery is is speaking about his disciplinary court and being excommunicated. And he's trying to say, look, Joseph Smith did something at the exact same time that's as as equal to or worse than what I did. And it was a dirty, filthy, nasty scrape. And yet here we go in the Joseph Smith Papers Project and the whole document ends at page 80. Meanwhile, if they would have gone one more page, we would have the Fanny Alger affair as reported by Oliver Cowdery to his brother Warren, and we don't. So can you go, can we'll you go up to page 80, 80 on that screen? That's the one that they have, isn't it? Let's take a look. Let's just double check. I didn't check this. Maybe I'm wrong. Let's see. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Star, what is that? Star West something... 1838, maybe. Oh, look at that, RFM. Can you go to the bottom? It's the same damn page. That's where it's signed Oliver Cowdery. Dr. Joseph Smith Jr. So what, and then the next page over there. So how does the next page start? Next page is a different, looks like maybe it's a different letter. You will see from the other, oh, see, you'll see from the other page. They don't even include all of the same letter. It's the second page, but it's like an addendum because he signs the bottom of the first page on page 80. Right. And then it continues for another couple of pages. Oh, yeah, there's more. 83. I mean, I'm, you know, we can go. I can scroll down here. There are 50, 60, 80 pages. They don't want to include any of that. What they do is stop right at page 80. And 81 is the mic drop moment. And it's not there. 
So go figure. LDS Church isn't transparent. It's only as transparent as it knows how to be, and that's a whole hell of a lot different than you and I would use the word transparent. The church doesn't want people to see these documents when they're deeply damaging to faith. Now, I thought I would stop there, but there's one more little thing before we get to your major bombshell. Okay. And that is the church's, what is the church's biggest evidence for the Book of Mormon's truthfulness, RFM? Name. Nahum, N-H-M, at the right place, at the right time. Yeah. Now, if RFM, if we could find, if we could find a contemporary idea of the word Nahum in Joseph Smith's own mind in milieu, and it was a more rational, plausible uh, concept for him knowing that word than, than uh, a, a three-letter acronym in the middle of Israel at the right place at the right moment, would that be convincing enough for us to start to move towards accepting, number one, accepting that this is the more logical answer, and two, no longer giving the church a free pass on Nam? Well, maybe just a little bit. And I hate to ruin your, your whole no, uh, lead in. On I'm this page on the Joseph Smith Papers Project, if you go down to the bottom of the transcript, see, I'm still stunned at this. Okay. Where it says view entire transcript. What happens if you click that? Yeah, that's a great question. Document. Oh. Yeah. It does the same thing, doesn't it? It does the same damn thing. Shoot. Okay. You almost, you almost give them a pass. You know, you say, you know, it's it's like those essays. They make it three clicks deep. But the reality is they just don't give it to you. So uh, back to Nahum. I'm sorry. Nahum, yes. Yeah. Nahum, if there was some some other contemporary source that Joseph Smith could have gotten that that name from that he used in the Book of Mormon, would that help us start moving away from it being such a bullseye for the Book of Mormon? Would the apologist stop getting a free pass? Um. Well, probably, yeah. I think it would definitely uh, undercut, to some degree, the strength of the argument. Well, what I found was, let's see if I can find the right one. Um, oh, I don't have that page up. But let me just share with you. I came across a document that mentions the Knight family, because I'm reading up on the Knights. I'm trying to be ready so that when you give this presentation that I can add a few ideas. And I'm reading this morning, and I come across the Knight family uh, mentioning that Newell Knight's son is named, what does that RFM look like? Nahum. Nahum. Now, and, it's not Nahum, like no, the Book of Mormon. It's Nahum. Who the hell knows how it's pronounced in the original Book of Mormon? Who the hell knows how Joseph Smith is dictating <laughs> it? You know, we go in and we go, you know, it's Nephi, not Nephi. But we don't. Ha we weren't there in the room as the dictation is occurring. And it's only a modern church that begins to go like, here's how every one of these words is pronounced. We have no clue. But, and again, we also don't know what dialect Joseph Smith is using. We don't know what dialect his neighbors are using. We don't know what accents they had. Often words are spelled in this time period like they sound. And, and there are differences in even common word spelling from one person to another in these moments because how people hear a word pronounced often differs. So here you have Nahum and the original document where it was at, I don't have my phone on at the moment, but the original document it was at talks about how close Joseph Smith was with the family, how much he's interacting with the kids of uh, Joseph Knight Sr., how often he's act enacting, um, interacting with the kids of Newell Knight. And these guys are all close. They all know each other. There's no ifs, ands, or buts that he knew this Nahum who is one of the kids of Newell Knight. Now, we can go back here, uh, Nahum, 
by the way, the guy disappeared. He disappeared sometime. I think it was the 1850s or so. He just vanishes. And genealogists and uh, historical research have tried to find him. There is a proposed date here in genealogy. But if you've done much genealogy, you know that a lot of people get their dates wrong as they try to as they're desperate to have closure to all these people that they're doing uh ancestry work for to send their names to the temple. But Nahum was born in uh, 2nd July, 1796. He's 10 years older than Joseph Smith, basically, in Vermont. Uh, where, were the, where were the Smith family born, by the way? Well, Vermont. Joseph Smith was born in Sharon, Windsor County, Vermont. Yeah. December in, 23rd, 1805. Yep. And then they end up moving. So it shows his father, Joseph Knight, senior of 23, mother, Polly Peck. He married Sarah Williams. They're the parents of at least five sons, four daughters lived in Buchanan, Missouri. Um, but this family knew the Smiths extremely well and have a deep interaction with them, to the point where the church in its own document, churchofjesuschrist.org at the top, this is the lesson on the Knight family. And it mentions that following the martyrdom, the Knights were really faithful despite all the criticism going on in the church, all the people losing their faith, the, that the Knights were held fast to their testimony. All the relatives in Nauvoo, except perhaps Nahum, who we lack records, left the city to uh, to go westward. And then, um, man, let's see if it's in here. Control, let me do this again. N-A-H. Susquehanna. U-M, or was it, what was the pronunciation? N-A-H-U-M. N-A-H-U-M. I don't think it's in there. Let me try. No, it's not that document. I thought maybe it would be that one. But anyway, Nahum is a contemporary person in Joseph Smith's milieu who he was deeply familiar with that has a similar pronunciation and an extremely similar spelling to the location in the Book of Mormon that the apologists run to and pick out three letters. Well, they got three letters, RFM. I got four if you count them. I got four. So from here on out, anytime someone says Nahum, you just simply have to point out the Knight family and one of their kids had the same name. And if their three letters works, then sure as hell my four does. And I will say for anybody who wonders that, yes, Bill Real and I are, are completely aware that Nahum is the name of a, uh, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Yeah. But again, whether Joseph Smith is completely cognizant of that or not no longer matters because his buddy two blocks down has the same name. Yes. And remember, the Knights met the Smiths in 1825, 1826. Book of Mormon is not published till 1830. Right. So there's that. Now, I will get the hell out of your way, RFM, and only add color commentary as you point out what I think is a major significant find as we talk about the data and the context of what you discovered. Okay, I'm going to try and do this in 12 minutes. Ready? Go for it. First thing is that when I read this about the missing page or pages from the beginning of the Joseph Knight journal, I wanted to be able to read it instead of, you know, reading what uh, D. Michael Quinn, with all respect to him, has to say about it. I'd like to read it myself. And so he gives his footnote to an article that was written by Dean Jesse in 1976 in BYU Studies. Okay. And in it, he talks about this journal and he gives a little introduction gives a lot of footnotes and very helpfully he gives a transcript of the entire thing so what he does in this um the part of his introduction here is he describes it and this is where d michael quinn gets his quote the manuscript is incomplete missing at least one beginning page 
Although written in pencil from one to 10, the page numbers were obviously added by a later writer to designate the sequence of surviving pages. So there's five leaves left written uh, front and back to make a total of 10 pages. Now he calls it five pages, but I'm trying to differentiate leaves from pages to make it clear. Um, and then he talks about some words that were added later. And he says, minimal punctuation has been added here to facilitate reading. So now if we go to, oh, by the way, can we read this first part? Because this will be important. It says, Joseph Knight's account reproduced below, although undated and unsigned, appears to be a holograph, i.e. he wrote it, pinned sometime between the author's departure from Jackson County, Missouri in 1833 and his death in 1847. Well, we know he wrote it before he died. So that last date's an easy one to figure out. The earlier date of 1833, is because the very end of this 10 pages references the year 1833, and it seems to be on the cusp of the Mormons getting thrown out of Jackson County. Joseph Knight Sr. was one of the people who was down there in Missouri, as opposed to being up there in Kirtland, Ohio, in the other headquarter of the church during this time. So that's why they say 1833 and 1847. I think that when we look at the last pages, it looks more like it's closer to 1833 and probably 1833, since according to the reading of it, it sounds like they haven't been thrown out yet, but they're about ready to, to have to leave. Yeah. Are and, you able to go down to that right now, by the way? Uh, is it just below this? It's at the very end, at the very uh, end of this very, entire very, document. Okay, let me go right here. This is the last page. Yeah, so go up there, yeah. So he says, um, so that passed off and he, that's Joseph, returned to Kirtland again. Remember, he came down every now and then to Missouri. And I think he did not come to Missouri the next year for the mob began to show their black heads in 1833. But Joseph sent and counseled during our troubles in Jackson County. And after the worst came to the worst, thought we had better leave the county, period. That's the end of the, the, um, uh, the history by yeah. Joseph Knight. Yeah, which as you're pointing out, if there's more history to tell, if there are more significant events that happen, if those significant events, um, if this thing goes into 1834, 1835, 1836, you've got the Kirtland Temple, you've got the Kirtland Safety Society Bank. As this thing goes further along, the fact that he's stopped writing for all intents and purposes, right, or intensive purposes, I'm not sure which one's the right, whichever one of those. Would it, regardless, it is a fact or close to it that it is that it is apparent that he stopped writing in 1833 or super close to that moment to say like, oh, it could have been written like three months before he died. That really doesn't work. He stops writing the history in 1833. This document, as far as Joseph Knight Sr. is, uh, uh, as far as it, it goes with him, this document ends in 1833. Right. And that's my sense of it. I mean, Possibly anything's possible, but I would think that if they'd been kicked out of Jackson County at this point, he would have said we got kicked out and we had to go over here to this county and uh, all the other stuff that was happening. But it's he doesn't. Yeah, it's irrational. This thing, for for all purposes, was written in 1833 or the very beginning of 1834. Okay, now that'll be important here in a second. Can you go to the top? Uh, yeah, let's go back just back to where we had it. Yeah, so we're provisionally dating this document to 1833, maybe early 1844, but basically 1833. Okay, so now go down to where the transcript of Joseph Knight Sr.'s journey begins. And okay. the, it should be noted, this isn't Joseph Knight sharing his family's biography. This is Joseph Knight. You can tell by reading it. What his purpose is, is to delve into Joseph Smith and who he was and the events and things that followed with him. 
That's the deal because that's why I wanted to read it so I could find out what was going on myself. And thanks to this article by Dean Jesse in 76 BYU studies, I can and everybody can. So even though I don't know that the actual document itself is available for public perusal, it's probably still in archives. Manuscript of the early history of Joseph Smith. He even titles it. It's a history of Joseph Smith. This is what he's writing. He's writing his version of church history. And he'll intersect with it starting in 1826. But basically what he's starting out is from thence. I got to stop right there. Yeah. When you use the words, this is another point of making this clear. When you use the words from thence, he did something. Yes. Use of that phrase means something happened prior that I've already told you. And from that point, we're now moving into what followed from that. Right. And when you read this, you will understand why it is that everybody understands that this is not where it starts. And there has to be at least one page before it that's missing. Right. And maybe two. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So from thence, this is how it begins. From thence, he went to the hill where he was informed the record was and found no trouble for it appeared plain as though he's acquainted with the place. I'm sorry, I'll slow down. For it appeared plain as though he was acquainted with the place. It was so plain in the vision that he had of the place. He went and found the place and opened it and found a plain box. Okay, now we already know exactly where this is in church history, right? This is September 1823 when Joseph Smith has had the angel or spirit or whoever, we don't know in this account, but typically it would be Moroni appearing to him in his bedroom telling him about all the stuff that uh, uh, that's happened that's on these plates that they kept a record and showing him the vision of the plates. And then the next day, Joseph tries to go out and work and falls over the fence. The angel appears a fourth time and tells him to go. And he goes out to the hill. From thence, he went to the hill. So we know where in the narrative this is supposed to occur, at least according to the current uh, narration of the events. And as you're pointing out, what he's sharing right now happens at least two to three years before he meets Joseph Smith Jr. It's not like he's sharing his story. He is sharing the information that has been reported to him by the by Joseph Smith Jr. himself and the early adherents of Mormonism from the beginning. He is now trying to tell everybody else the storyline. Yes, that's exactly what he's doing, except he's doing it from the third person. And he's obviously doing it because he has heard it from Joseph Smith, the one that he's very close with and has known since 1826, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, I want to do something here if I can, because this is driving me crazy. Okay. I want to go to the Pearl of Great Price. I want to go to the Joseph Smith history. I want to go down here to the part about Moroni, which I'm doing. This is like scripture chase. Okay. Now. Tell me what chapter and verse you're on, and I'll put it up on the screen. It's Joseph Smith History 1. It's the only one there is, really. I don't know why they say 1, but it's Joseph Smith History and the Pearl of Great Price. What verse are you in? Do you know? I'm at uh, at 34, talking about a book deposited, loose robes, exquisite whiteness. Um, 21st of September. Yeah, you're right about in that section in terms of... Yeah, 29. So anyway, I'm sorry, because it doesn't say what year there. I hope that it would. But it is 1823. Okay. That thing's driving me crazy, but I'll I'll pursue. I will pursue. Like, um, like, um, St. Patrick after the badger, I think the expression was that Joseph Smith used. Here we go. Now... 
Let me go back to where we were. And there we go. Thank you. So going back to the beginning, we know that where this is. We know exactly where we are in the narrative. Moroni has appeared for the first time, showed him where the place is, and he's running out there. From thence, he went to the hill where he was informed the record was. And we observe that this is the first time he's been there. This isn't like a subsequent time he's been to the hill. This is the first time. This is 1823 mm -hmm. in the narrative. All right. That's critical. Now, here I'm actually going to thank D. Michael Quinn for bringing this to my attention, but I'm actually going to differ from his interpretation in one respect. What did what did he say was probably the reason that these pages are missing? He thought the pages were missing because uh, the pages would cover. Let me write and see where I have this, where he put it. He said the missing portion would cover the period when treasure digging was allegedly the primary association of night with teenage Joseph. Okay. I think that's incorrect. And I say that with all respect and trepidation when I'm talking about D. Michael Quinn's yeah. conclusion, but I have a reason for it. Okay. Yeah. The reason why, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, I, I would want you to read the rest of this page before you actually drop the bombshell, if that's okay, because there's one more point in this, in this recounting that I want to, I want to hit on. And I think it's actually in, uh, well, the first thing is, I will say, while you're doing that, go ahead yeah. and read the entire document, please, because what you will see is that Joseph Knight Sr., probably in 1833, no earlier than 1833, is writing History of Joseph Smith, and he is at pains to write it chronologically, mm -hmm. as you usually would if you're writing history of something, right? You start yeah. at the very beginning, a very good place to start. You go all the way through. Yeah. Now, he starts with 1823. Yeah. Okay. September 1823, we know that. And when I say we start, I mean, that's where it begins with what we have is 1823. Yep. And and when you get into page four, what you find is that he's telling the story about who has to go with him to the hill. And then his brother Alvin dies. We all know that history. Mm -hmm. Then he gets down here to the very bottom. And I'm just right here. I'll highlight it. Joseph then went to Mr. Stoll, Stoll's where he had lived some time before. That's that's new information to the reader. He's telling the, the, the reader new information. He's making it clear, hey, this stole guy that I'm telling you about right now, Joseph lived with him at one time. This is new information. Josiah Stoll's deeply connected to the treasure digging. This is one indication, by the way, that as you're pointing out, treasure digging probably isn't the thing that we're missing. Um, there's, there's already a, um, some conversation about, hey, the stole stuff, is now going on, and I'm going to tell you about it, at least as much as I want to tell you about it. And let me give you some of that context, which tells you that it probably that context is missing, not missing from the earlier section. Yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah. And the other thing is this, uh, page four, if you yeah. can stay on page four. Here's the whole deal, okay. Starts in 1823. We understand that Joseph Smith doesn't meet Joseph Knight until 1826, which is three years later. And that part is covered chronologically in the existing document where we would expect it to be if Ooh. it were related chronologically. Okay. And that is, I think it's the next paragraph after the one that you had just read. If you'll slow down there. Um, no, it's not there. Now I have it in mine. Sorry. I've got my, um, do you have the part about Emma Hale? This is, then he looked in his glass and found it was Emma Hale. It's on yeah. page four. Yep, that's this part here. 
Um, then he looked in his glass and found it was inhaled. There you go. Right there. Then he looked in his glass and found it was Emma Hale. Can you see that? Yeah. Who is the right person right there? Right. That was the, the second time he came back because uh, first time he couldn't get the plates because he had set him down and looked away. Then he comes back. Then he's told he has to bring his brother Alvin with him the next time. And Alvin dies in the meantime. So he can't come back with Alvin. He comes back without Alvin. He says, hey, where's where's the guy I told you to come back with? And Joseph Smith says, well, I got bad news. He passed away. And the angel says, well, I'm sorry. Angels don't know that stuff. Too bad angels don't know what's going to happen. You know? Well, yeah, it was unfortunate. It was not foreseen, apparently. Mm, not foreseen. So then, you know, it's like, okay, well, you got to bring something. You got to bring the right person with you. And Joseph Smith says, who? He says, well, you'll know who it is. And look in your glass. And he sees it's Emma Okay, so that's the, the context. Who is the right person? The answer was, you will know. Then he looked in his glass and it was Emma Hale. Daughter of old Mr. Hale of Pennsylvania. A girl he had seen before for he had been down there before with me. Now, here it is. This is where he talks about meeting Joseph Smith. Joseph then went to Mr. Stoll's where he had lived some time before. But Mr. Stoll could not pay him money for his work very well. And he came to me perhaps in November. That's the November of 1826 when he meets Joseph Smith. And he came to me perhaps in November and worked for me until about the time that he was married, which I think was in February. And I paid him the money and I furnished him with a horse and cutter. So he talks about Joseph Smith and working just for FYI, him. Just FYI, it's it's most likely November of 1825 because the glass looking trial happens in 1826. Okay, I'm just going off D. Michael Quinn for that part. Most likely. The, and once again, it's not all crystal, but what is crystal here is that he's going chronologically, mm -hmm. that he starts in 1823 with Moroni's first vision, Yeah, that he covers it by the time we get to this page, Joseph meeting him in 1826, which would be chronologically from 1823 and going up to 1833, 1833 mm -hmm. where it ends. In order, everything is chronological. Yes. In this section, it is Moroni came, showed him where the plates were, he visits the hills, he asked to take Alvin, but then Alvin dies, and now here's Emma, and and now he you know he starts working for the Stoles, but that didn't go so well, so now he met me, and here's what happened next. Chronological. Very good. So now, this is what I'm going to suggest to you. We know, we know what is immediately on the page right before where it starts. From thence he went to the hill. We know what's on that page right before. Because what's on that page right before is Moroni or whoever appearing to him and showing him the place where it was hidden. Yeah. Right? RFM, what else do you think might be before? Here's the key. What chronologically would be in a history of Joseph Smith written by Joseph Knight Sr. before the appearance of the angel Moroni. Yeah. Hmm. Listeners, viewers, what do you think would be a, a significant event before Moroni's visit telling Joseph where the plates were that Joseph Knight would have included as an important event in the history? Huh. I know. What is it, RFM? The first vision. The first vision. Now, hold on a minute. Uh, you're saying that there is potentially and maybe even logically and rationally highly likely another first vision account. Let me tell you what's going on here. And I will bet you $100 right now. What's going on there is that in the first part, the missing pages is an 1833 account of the first vision written by Joseph Knight Sr. based upon what Joseph Smith told him. Yeah, we know that Joseph Smith was already talking or writing about a first vision because he wrote his own account of his first vision in his 1832 
personal history yeah. in letter book one. It's we on the mind. Hmm. We know that Joseph Fielding Smith was so uh, uncomfortable with the way it was portrayed in that 1832 account, mentioning only one being appearing and some other problems that he cut it out and hid it in his safe for three decades until he had to put it back because it was leaked to the public that he had possession of it. Yeah. Hmm. What I'm suggesting here, my friend, is that there is another missing account of the first vision. And, and where's the likelihood of where that first vision was or existed? If it still exists today, where might it be? Um, in the vault. In uh, who did that vault belong to when the other first vision account was removed? It was Joseph Fielding Smith, the church historian's vault from 1920 to 1970. We're talking half a century. He was the church historian. And once he became church president during the last two years of his life from 1970 to 1972, he took that church historian's vault, according to D. Michael Quinn, and rolled it into the first presidency vault. And he says that's where its contents remain. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to just say here, RFM, that if the church would like to come forward and tell us more about the provenance of the Joseph Knight senior recollection, if it would like to explain to us what it knows about those missing page is meaning two or more, um, we would welcome any kind of correction of the data that we're sharing. But what you're pointing to is that the context of this juxtaposed against Joseph Fielding Smith and a similar timeline document, 1832, 1833, I can imagine a, a cardboard box with all of that same stuff from those same years sitting in it. Joseph Fielding Smith cuts out with a penknife. We know this for a fact in terms of it being cut out, and we're almost assuredly know it's Joseph Fielding Smith. Cuts it out, stores it away in his vault, um, and he not only stores away the 1832 First Vision account, he also cuts out an additional eight leaves, 16 pages, that we don't know what is on those. Out of and the end of letter book one. And now we have a third thing missing that is almost assuredly based on the context you've just gone over tonight, another First Vision account. And that First Vision account is almost assuredly not kosher with the dominant narrative, is it? Why is it missing? Yeah, the only reason to take it out would be it doesn't because, fit the storyline. Yeah, because it made somebody uncomfortable again. Yeah. yeah. So LDS Church, I'm just going to simply take a second here to tell you, we're pretty sure, extremely confident, really, that you've got another First Vision account or at least had it at one time. We would invite you to be more transparent than you know how to be and to go ahead and give us the other first vision account that you have in Joseph Fielding Smith's vault inside the church historian's vault. And, you know, we did a little conversation recently on the one guy who has access to all this stuff. I think maybe we'll reach out to him and see if he'll return a message to us. What do you think the chances of that are? I think who knows, because you're amazing the way you you contact people and they respond to you. You just have to, you have a gift. Uh, with people, yeah. but yeah, they, they, they have this or have had it. I would challenge the church to be as transparent as they claim to be. I challenge you. I promise you, I challenge you that as you are as transparent as you claim to be and produce these pages that the Lord will bless you for your honesty. Yeah. I, I don't have a lot of faith in LDS leaders because they've already been bullshitting us so much for so long, so often. But there's another First Vision account, and it doesn't go along with the 1838 account, and it may exist today or it may not, 
but I guarantee I'm going to guarantee because I because I'll be happy to jump off, uh, you know, jump off the wagon and say I was wrong. I'll apologize. Uh, you'll never, ever lay eyes because as far as the church wants the public to know, there's some pages missing and we don't know what's on it. We don't know. We don't know what's on it. It's that's we're being as transparent as we know how to be. But there's a first vision account that exists that we don't have. And it doesn't go along with the 1838 account or the Wentworth letter. And nobody gets a chance to read that one, do we? Nope. From 1833. So I think that's one hell of a bombshell that, that you discovered as you and I are preparing these things week after week. Um, there is more Mormon history to learn about, folks. You don't even have access to some of it. There are things the church is still hanging on to. We mentioned this before. It is, I think it's William Law's journal that, mm -hmm. we, that we don't have. Um, the reason that uh, Hoffman was able to talk about these McClellan documents is because there's supposed to be something out there. Not that the church has it, not that they're hiding it, but there are documents that have existed or possibly still exist that are deeply damaging to the church. It finally released the Council of 50 Minutes, and that has a lot of stuff in it. And there are still things the church is hanging on to that it, it acknowledges exist, that historians acknowledge exist, and, and we are not allowed to read them. The church is not being honest. It's not being transparent. You don't even get a chance to read this fifth First Vision account. Would it be fair to say they're being translucent? <laughs> yeah, maybe. So with that, my friend, you, I think, hit on something that is new to, to Mormon history. Um, and and the, the sad fact of the church being deceptive while it talks about being transparent and honest. Amen, brother. Any other thoughts on, on all of this stuff? No, that was exhausting. The, all these bombshells going off. I had to duck for cover at one point. Yeah, let me. So what I'm going to do is while if you want to maybe run us through the things that we learned tonight that I don't think most members knew, and at least one thing they absolutely didn't, didn't give us a recap. And while you're doing that, I'll put the banner up. Uh, okay, the first part was about the Steve Miller song, Abra, Abracadabra, Abracadabra. Anyway, uh, about the faculty of Abrac. Yeah, that was just sort of a, a gimme. Second thing was about the statement by William W. Phelps in January of 1831 that the places where Martin Harris and Joseph Smith dug for the plates could still be seen, mm. or as he put it, they still appear. Um, so that'd be two years later, these multiple places where they were out digging for plates as opposed to being directed there by an angel, which doesn't appear in his letter. Um, it sounds a lot more like a treasure dig than an angelic vision, which is what it came to be in the 1838 account and over time. Then there was the, um, the scrape, the uh, nasty, dirty, filthy, abominable, horrible, awful scrape. And that's not that, on the Joseph Smith Papers project anymore, is it? Right, that Joseph Smith uh, got involved in, that, uh, in a letter that Oliver Cowdery wrote to his brother, Warren Cowdery, and apparently it was up there before the Joseph Smith Papers Project, maybe. I think you said it. Maybe yeah, it was on the I, phone to me. I have You've a memory of seeing it. I have a memory of seeing it. It's not there anymore. So if it's never been up, so be it. But, at the, but maybe it was up and they took it down. But regardless, either way, the church doesn't want that document on the Joseph Smith Papers. I can't imagine why. Hmm. Yeah, okay. you wonder, don't you? And so the next thing is that you got the Joseph Knight senior history and it's missing at least the first page, maybe multiple pages. Those are gone. Um, Nahum. Don't Nahum. Oh, Nahum. I'm sorry. Yeah. Nahum. Boom. 
friend, uh, Nam Knight, who's Joseph Knight Sr.'s son, 10 years older than Joseph Smith. They hung out. Okay. So Nam. And and then the missing pages from Joseph Knight Sr.'s history of Joseph Smith, which almost certainly contain an early, like 1833, first vision account heard by Joseph Knight Sr. from Joseph Smith, recorded, and now it's gone. Boom. There you are. So you can reach us at 435-200-FIST. Sorry. Or those are also the numbers, 3478. A couple little things. Folks are asking. There's a lot of comments that they are blown away by the stuff we just shared tonight. This is what critical thinking in real historical research looks like, brothers and sisters. A couple little notes. Uh, We are now a a nonprofit on YouTube. I don't know yet. I I would just suggest, if possible, please go to mormonismlive.org. There is a program there. If you hit the donate button, you go to a program called DonorBox. You can donate a certain amount. It goes through either uh, Stripe or PayPal, or you can just pay with your debit or credit card. Easiest way to donate uh, is this YouTube, as you're watching it on here. You are welcome. By the way, there are 243 people here watching this live stream. That's the most I think we've ever had, RFM. It's like we're addressing a full chapel. Yeah. Yeah, we we basically have more attendance than any LDS ward out there. Wow. Um, so we're a nonprofit on YouTube. I'm looking in to see if they've reduced the amount they take out. I've seen places where it says we get 100%. I've seen places, and with them paying the processing fee even, and I've seen places where they still keep the 30. I just want to just warn donors, it's just best to go to mormonismlive.org. The other thing, too, that we we did this week is uh, just below the video over in the RFM's corner over there, you'll see a join button. You can also pay to become a donating uh, subscriber to our channel. And if you want to do that, you're welcome to. From time to time, I think there will be unique content available to those donators. Maybe maybe a chance for me or URFM to just sit and do a Q&A with these folks. Wow. Uh, Alan and Katie Mount come on maybe and do a little thing answering questions about mixed faith marriages or something like that. Um, but you can become a member and open yourself up to additional content and a very minimum just simply support the program. Uh, the lines are are open. Um, let me pull up my uh, phone or my uh, my my uh, screen here. Sorry. If you've called, maybe try to call again. I didn't hear anything in my ear. Uh, looks like I just got one, but just missed it. If somebody wants to, Oops. let me try to call them back. Sorry about that. There we go. Let's see if somebody picks up. Wow. Not, is it loud in your ear? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. When they oh. pick up, I... I'll hang up with them. If anybody else wants to try, if you tried calling, call back. I don't know why, but by having the screen not up on my monitor, uh, it must have just kicked the call. Uh, so we'll just we'll just wait another couple minutes. I'm sure people want to call in and talk about this topic because I, I think this is huge deal. The church had at one time a fifth first vision account. Here we go. Call from... All right. You, uh, if you wouldn't mind stating your name and then uh, you're on Mormonism Live with Bill Real and RFM, would you mind sharing your name and then telling us what you're thinking about tonight's episode? Sure. Uh, my name is FW. Okay. Go ahead with the question. Yeah, please. Okay. So in uh, Mark Hoffman's Salamander letter, and I, I just read this in one of Dan Vogel's books as well, 
he quotes the salamander letter early on uh, before everybody had figured everything out. But anyway, um, the line preceding where he talks about the salamander, uh, Hoffman has Martin Harris referring to Moroni's visit, according to Joseph Smith, as a dream, not, mm-hmm. you know, like an actual visitation. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, the salamander is kind of drawing on this other Willard Chase account um, right, where he refers to like a toad. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there's, uh, if anything was made of that uh, reference, what that, you know, uh, Hoffman had Martin Harris saying it was a dream, not an actual vision. And if that is another case of like drawing upon other, um, you know, sources that were similar to that. And I, maybe you all would, would know something about that. Some people Perfect. were saying that maybe that maybe this earlier uh, vision that got cut out was talking about it being a dream. It perhaps, yeah. you know, so I don't know if there's cool. any, anything to talk about there. L- but yeah. Let me hang up. With you. Yeah. Let me hang up with you. And we'll sure. answer that. Thank Thanks. you, friend. So uh, my two thoughts are here is one is that you've got uh, Joseph Smith Jr. being visited by Moroni in a bedroom that would have had all of the boys sleeping in the bed. So one indication that it was a dream instead of an actual visitation is the idea that Moroni comes into the room and if he wakes up Joseph, he would have woke up all the other brothers. Then you got to go to supernatural magic, which an angel, I guess, can do. But then he makes all the other kids stay asleep while he spends hours and hours coming multiple times to Joe Smith Jr. to teach him that. The other thing is you have Paul in the New Testament who says, uh, whether I seen a vision or dreamed a dream, I do not know whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, right? Um, it seems like there's this indication that we don't really know the difference between an actual physical visitation and a dreamlike state hallucination or or vision, and that those could be essentially undiscernible, whether it's one or the other. Your thoughts, RFM? Oh, uh, go ahead and take the call. I'll just say that, you know, I don't know of any other document where it's called a dream in a legitimate non-Mark Hoffman document. But I would follow along with exactly what you were saying, which is that sometimes it is indistinguishable. What is a dream and what is reality? Haven't we all had dreams where we thought that was I awake? Um, And maybe that's a suggestion that this might have been having occurred at night. Nobody else waking up. So I don't know. Um, I don't know any other sources and I'm not encyclopedic on this issue. So that doesn't mean anything really is what I'm saying. I just don't know any other sources where it's referred to as a dream that are not forgeries. Right. Uh, Caller, you are on the air. State your name. You're on Mormonism Live with Bill Real and Radio Free Mormon. And uh, let us know what's on your mind. Hey, guys, it's James here. I'm calling you from down under, sunny Brisbane. Um, Just a quick question. With the the four previous known first vision accounts varying between God, Jesus, angels, or some form of them, what do you think this fifth vision or version, rather, would comprise or entail. Yeah, thank you. I'll hang up with you and we'll we'll answer your question. Easy, thank you. Perfect. Uh any guesses? You're not much you're not usually much for guesses. You try to stick to data. I'm much more, I guess, uh willing to go beyond the mark. Well my my guess if you ask me, my guess is that it would be more similar to the 1832 account than to the 1838 account. Yeah, that would be my guess as well is that whatever it is, it doesn't mesh with the 1838. It has contradictory points and uh, was just as bothersome or more to Joseph Fielding Smith that he cut it out. And just like the 1832 account, I should say cut it out, but just took the pages. And just like the 1832 account, which was cut out, stored them away in the church historian's vault. 
Um, it probably, because of Joseph, we kind of know Joseph's theology at the time because of the Book of Mormon and what its early framing of Jesus and God was. We know that the Satan thing seems to come in later. So it seems like it would be a visitation by Jesus and Heavenly Father not being there would be the best guess, right? Right. Yeah. Call from. Caller, you are on the air with Mormonism Live, RFM, and Bill Real. Would you mind stating your name and tell us what your thoughts are on tonight's episode? Yeah, this is Kevin. Um, great episode. Thanks, guys. Um, I This week, uh, Russell Nelson posted um, that video called The Airplane Crash. And what I found today was Daniel C. Peterson put the an excerpt from Sherry, the Sherry Dude's book, um, the biography of, of Russell and Nelson. And they actually give exact dates on when that plane crash happened. And it turned out that the crash supposedly happened in my hometown of Delta. And I went and looked at the newspaper records and there is nothing of a plane crash. There's all sorts of other plane crashes, but, but in that month, there is nothing that, that uh, tells us about that. And I was curious if you guys saw that, um, that video from the Easter message. And if you looked into that about there not being any records, the other thing is there's no, there's a, a airplane database um, of crashes and it is not in there. And I just find it a, a crazy story to not have anything on any record of that happening when we have the exact date of when it happened. Yeah. Interesting. I'll hang up with you and we'll respond. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Uh, I came across the same thing, RFM that I saw. I, I know the story. He shared it, you know, I know this multiple story. times. Yeah. And I think the church made a video out of it and everything. Um, but I also have my doubts about any church leader telling the truth when they tell a faith promoting story. And my gut tells me just like the one with uh, Nelson canceling these full, large packed arenas mm. that there is maybe a half truth here or maybe a complete lie. But those are the two things I expect from LDS leaders. Yes. Russell and Nelson stars in airplane. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll be Sharknado Seven. <laughs> I have been really consumed with uh, not only my job and other things, which I've been very consumed with, but also this particular line of inquiry for the past week. Um, I am aware of a video, an Easter message, or Palm Sunday message, or whatever being posted. I'm aware that this was talked about. I'm aware that a lot of people now are are pursuing this. Uh, people who know about stuff like airplanes and air traffic, trying to locate where it is and what flight it would have been to see if they can confirm this story is actually having happened. Um, I'm not aware of any success in that regard, but we have top men working on it. Now you ask me who, Bill. Yeah. Ask yeah. me who. Who Who would that be? No, just say who. Who? Top. Oh, man. No, no, hold on, Laura. I'm sorry. Top oh, man. I, we're doing... We're doing a scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark for crying out loud. Yeah. Top, top men make something happen. Who? Top men. That's all you get to know. Top That's men. You need to know. <laughs> Laura, you are on Mormonism Live. You're on with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. Uh, your thoughts on tonight's episode? Um, awesome episode. You guys are awesome. I've been kind of going back and binging your episodes the past couple weeks. I just have a simple question, which is kind of as everyday ex-Mormons, post-Mormons, um, nuanced members of the church, how can we put pressure on the church with 
documents like this or other documents that they might have to reveal those documents and put them out in public rather than keeping them hidden. Perfect. I'll hang up with you and we'll respond. Thank you. Yep. You're welcome. What I've noticed RFM is that anytime we members or ex members put a significant amount of pressure on the church, to be honest, they seem to come forward and do something better and different. It may not be exactly the way we want it to be, but they do seem to make adjustments. When people raised a fuss about the 1832 account, it was taped back into the letter book. When people made a fuss about the historical issues, gospel topic essays came out. When people raised a fuss about sexism in the temple, suddenly that stuff was taken out of that, out of that space. The church seems to respond to loud voices and criticisms uh, pointing out when Kate Kelly uh, did her thing, the church found ways to start involving sister missionaries and sisters in wards and stakes more, including the church generally, by the way. Um, it is really us collectively going enough is enough. We know something's wrong here. Something has to happen. Sam Young raises his voice and now people have the option. I wish it was a rule, but they have the option to get two adults in the room for these interviews. Right, you go ahead and check on that, Bill, and I'll just add that, um, yeah, when it, it's a simple cost-benefit analysis the church does. When it's getting a sufficiently black enough eye over an issue of not disclosing stuff, they'll finally disclose it, but they'll find a way to do it so that they have clean hands, but they will disclose it. I think the most uh, proactive thing that listeners to the show can do is share this episode with friends, anybody that you think is appropriate, and maybe, hopefully, it would create a groundswell uh, which we can pursue in other ways if uh, there's enough of a groundswell to try and bring this to a public attention sufficiently that the church will cough up these pages. Yeah, there. If that first fifth, if that fifth first vision account exists still, and it did at one time, if it exists still, if all of us inside and outside said we want to see it, we know it's there, share it. The church would have no choice but to respond to that if that voice was significant enough. So absolutely. Excellent point, RFM. Uh, caller, you are on the air. If you wouldn't mind sharing your name, you're on with Bill Real and RFM. What is, uh, what's on your mind tonight? Oh, um, when I actually was withdrawing, um, well, resigning from the church, I actually was kind of mad. So I went through all of my um, documents, manuals, study guides, everything I could possibly find that I had had while in the church. And I actually put together a Google Doc of all the misinformation and lack of information about the Book of Mormon translation process and disseminated church material. Um, and I actually have a link to that. If you guys would be cool with me posting it in the comments, I just thought maybe it might help somebody on their way out to see all the misinformation in one spot that was given to us while we're in the church. I would love that. What, what, um, where are you watching this? I'm assuming it's YouTube. Oh yeah. I'm on YouTube. Yeah. Would um, you just post it there? I, I will see it. That. Yep. And I will put it in the resource notes for tomorrow's audio only podcast episode as well. Okay. Um, cool. I did go through, it does have a bunch of pictures and stuff in there, but I referenced where I got each one of them from, from each of the different manuals. Um, and I actually found where they had changed some of the pictures in their um, study picture book thing they used to pass out to teachers. Because I was I was a Sunbeam teacher, um, and and actually a CPR teacher at one point. But they actually changed it on their website when they uploaded it digitally. It's not Ooh, the same gotcha. pictures of Joseph translating. Gotcha. Yeah, um, we're going to obviously close the episode here in the next couple of minutes. If you could put it up ASAP, I'll see it and I will. Make yep, sure I just it gets threw it in there. All right, perfect. I should see it any second. Great. Uh, 
appreciate that very much. Thank you. Yeah. And once again, to state the obvious, oh, excuse me, sorry. Once again, to state the obvious, there is almost certainly nothing in this uh, first vision account. I'm just going to call it that because it's so certain to me that that's what it is. All the evidence points that way. There's mm -hmm. there's nothing in this first vision account that's going to be so bad that it's worse than uh, the obvious fact that the church is hiding stuff again from the members. Yeah. While not acknowledging that there's this stuff in the vault and pretending it's not there or just saying like, there's some lost pages and we don't know what's on it. I don't know how that happened. Somebody just misplaced something at the office building. Like that's all nonsense. These things are taken and bought up and secured one way or another. And then they're stored away when they're controversial. Now they're faithful, as you pointed out, by the way, in the Hoffman episode, how does the church react when it gets a document that it believes is historical and that document is faith promoting, it puts all the leaders in front of a camera and Mark Hoffman gets to stand there with Boyd K. Packer in the background, because that's what it looks like when they get a faithful document. Within a week. Yeah, within a week. Newspapers are covering it because it's the Anton transcript. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. And the reality is that when it's not a faithful document, the church tries to quietly buy it through a third party and then just hides it away and pretends it doesn't have it until the voices get so loud that something has to happen. So... Yes, there's a fifth First Vision account, everybody, and you don't get the chance to read it because the church doesn't even want you to know it exists. So, RFM, I don't, I'm don't. i not going to take any more phone calls. Any other thoughts from you before we close up? No, that's it. This has been an exciting roller coaster of a ride for me. I thought the bombshells were going to be about the digging of the holes with Joseph Smith and Martin Harris and the missing pages talking about treasure digging. But then when I looked at it closer and realized it's not about treasure digging, it's a First Vision account almost certainly. That was the bombshell uh, within the bombshell. Yeah, and, and I think they're sending the document. For whatever reason, it's not coming across here for me. So I'm going to say uh, to, um, to Arca, to who said that she was posting it. Arca, could you please just Facebook message it to me? Uh, even if we're not Facebook friends, I check my the separate folder for non-Facebook friend messages uh, pretty much on a daily basis. If you could just send it to me that way. I will make sure that it gets put into the audio notes for tomorrow morning's release of this podcast. Uh, if nothing else, RFM, I think we're, we wrapped it up. This was good. I, this was a lot of fun to kind of read about the nights and to understand it, uh, what was going on there. And so I appreciate uh, you putting this together again. You spent a ton of time reading all these sources, digging into them, looking at them with like a lawyer kind of, you know, scope, like just kind of going over it with a fine tooth comb and finding these things that none of us ever think about or catch when we read these sources, we kind of just skip over it. And you've got this brain that is uh, designed to pick up the details and to see what other people don't see. And I really just, from from all the viewers and listeners, myself included, I just want to thank you for, for what you offer to us on this side of things uh, and help us kind of figure out new points of view and new data points that help us deconstruct uh, all the stuff we were given. You're very kind. Thank you for the kind words, sir. Okay. Well, if nothing else, my friend, uh, folks, goodbye. Sayonara. Adios. Uh, have a great week. And please donate to Mormonism Live. It helps us keep doing stuff like this. And as you can see, it's well worth it. <laughs>